Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. We're in the middle of Adventure Month here at the Retro Hour podcast, where all this month we are celebrating the art of point-and-click adventure games, the new wonderful book from our friends at Bitmap Books, which is out right now. Now, we're going to tell you more about it in the next 15 minutes, but check out theretrohour.com right now to get a look at it and get your hands on a copy, either by winning or buying it now. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 142, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Can I be honest with you? I've never been so pleased to be in here doing the podcast. Gets me away from moving house for an hour. Oh, oh. God. That, they say that's like one of the hardest things you can do in your life, moving house. I've done it about 11 times because you know my job takes me all over the country, but it never gets any easier. No, and uh, Dan's without internet. Dun, dun, dun. What oh, you going to do? I know. So if this show gets uploaded really early, probably at like midnight, it's because when the show comes out on Friday, that is a day that I'm actually moving out into my <laughs> new place. And I've got no internet for the weekend, so I'm already breaking out in a cold sweat. Well, <laughs> we've also been having fun on the internet. I've been live streaming, which yeah. is a... a Kind of a first for the retro hour, isn't it? You've been playing games. Well, yeah, I was playing Police Quest, but I was playing really badly. Um, <laughs> you could check the live stream on the Facebook page, also Twitter and on YouTube. But um, it's about two hours long, and I didn't know Police Quest was so dramatic. When I was driving the car, it's it's kind of like above view GTA Five style. And, but tiny. But tiny, yeah. Like a, your car's a pixel. <laughs> it's a fantastic game, though. I loved a comment on the stream when you were playing the game, because the driving's really difficult in that game, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. You've got to time it perfectly. And at one point, you're like, um, I'm going to go away and get a cup of tea. One of the comments was, like, you may as well get a beer, your driving's bad enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you were doing that because, I mean, October is Adventure Month on the Retro Hour podcast. Now, this month, we are showing some serious serious love too. it is fair to say one of our favorite genres of video games ever oh yeah the point and click adventure game genre and it's kind of a genre that's gone missing hasn't it for a long time you know there were there wasn't that many releases but nowadays you're getting stuff like thimbleweed park and you're getting hd versions of games as well and they really fit with like consoles like the Switch and stuff, don't they? Yeah, I think you're right because, you know, they were so popular in the late 80s and up until the mid-90s, really. And then they kind of, you know, got thrown by the wayside for FPS games came along and, you know, no one wanted adventure games anymore. But in the last couple of years, people have kind of rediscovered them as well. And that's one of the reasons why doing Adventure Month. Now, you and I have talked about doing a dedicated series about adventure games for a long time. And luckily, we've been able to do this thanks to this incredible new book. Now, we were talking about this last week. It's a book that's just come out. It's called The Art of Point-and-Click Adventure Games. And it's by our really good friends at Bitmap Books. Now, we've been big fans of Bitmap Books for years anyway, haven't we? Um, Oh, yeah, they've done some awesome kind of coffee table books. But this one, for me, is very special because it has all the companies that I remember from when I was a kid. Like, you know, Sierra, LucasArts and... It just shows the development of the engines as well. Yeah. So, like, Maniac Mansion was one of the first ones. And then you can kind of see all the different interpretations and different engines and how these adventure games got crazy. Do you remember The Dig? Oh, that, yeah. That, that, that was yeah. a really big one with a huge soundtrack. Yeah, originally a Steven Spielberg movie that then got changed into a, a game, yeah, wasn't yeah. it, for expensive reasons. Um, but, yeah, this book, I mean, looking through the list of games that are covered in here, King's Quest Discworld, Blade Runner, obviously we did an episode about that last week, uh, Flight of the Amazon Queen, Simon the Sorcerer, that we'll be talking more about in just a moment, Monkey Island, Maniac Mansion, Full Throttle. Now, this book is essentially a visual celebration of these classic point-and-click adventure games. 460 pages. It's really hard to describe the quality of this book by talking about it on a podcast. You've got to hold it in your hand to really believe it. 460 pages, lithographic print, hardback book as well. This thing feels incredible. Now, we've been running a competition, haven't we? Yeah, that so, is still going. <laughs> it's still going, so you guys can actually enter. Now, we've got this competition running at the moment, and we're going to pick a winner every week. Well done to Justin Laws, who has won a copy, uh, signed actually by Sam Dyer, 
from Bitmap Books. And that will be in the post over the next couple of weeks to you. So well done, Justin. And you can win your own copy as well. Now, we're going to run this all throughout Adventure Month, giving away a copy each week. And you can find that right now on the front page of our website, theretrohour.com. And also while you're there as well, I mean, have a little look at the book. And if you buy it using our link, you'll be helping out the podcast as well. So you'll find all that right now on the front page of theretrohour.com. Now, this week's guest is actually behind one of the games that you can read all about in the book. We're going to be talking about Simon the Sorcerer. I can't believe this. This (laughs) is one of my favorite games, absolutely favorite games. And the humor in it, the graphics, the music, God, this was like probably the prime Amiga title for me. It'd be everything. You need to wake yourself with excitement when I told you we're doing a Simon the Sorcerer. Oh, episode. totally, totally. <laughs> I still am. <laughs> well, we're going to be talking to Mike Woodroff. Now, obviously, games like Simon the Sorcerer, Elvira. Do you remember Elvira? Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, Waxworks as well. That was an awesome game. Yeah, and uh, fighting fantasy series books that he converted into games as well, didn't he? Um, some really good stories. If you're a fan of these classic games from uh, AdventureSoft, then make sure you hang around. Mike Woodroff is our special guest this week. And he'll be coming up in around 20 minutes from now. You're actually going to be playing Simon the Sorcerer on stream this week, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to do another one on Sunday. And uh, I don't know if I'm going to remember everything. So this may be (laughs) one where I require assistance again. (laughs) So you can watch Ravi on our Facebook page, on YouTube or on Twitter. And we'll have all of those links in the show notes as well. What time are you going to do it Sunday night? I think about six o'clock, but I'll have it scheduled so you can all see yeah so if you want to come along and uh, see how much Ravi remembers about Simon the Sorcerer hopefully this episode will jog a few memories <laughs> and if you're on our website as well that is another place that you can support this podcast because I, I still can't believe this we'll have been going three years in January my god I've got uh, friends who've got kids younger than that <laughs> <laughs> three years old we're going to be first week of January that's when we celebrate the show's anniversary and the only reason that we can keep doing it is because you know you guys help us out with the running of the show because doing a weekly retro gaming podcast it does have its expenses and uh, all of those are coming up for renewal actually uh, at the end of December so this would be well timed we do have a little tip jar that you can find on the front page of our website theretrohour.com either by PayPal or cryptocurrency if that's your thing and any amount big or small it all 100% goes back into the running of the show and you will find your place in the hall of fame just like this week tobias gearson glenn milford jonathan hogan and andrew p jones who all made donations into the running of the show and you can do the same find it right now at the retrohour.com now before we get into our interview with mike woodroff as part of adventure month on the retro hour podcast let's talk about some of the retro gaming stories that have been doing the rounds this week now, we know we've had all these mini consoles coming out. And not another one. There is another one that's kind of been rumoured. We've had the, the NES Mini, the SNES Mini, Mega Drive Mini's coming out next year. We'll talk more about that in just a bit. PlayStation Mini was announced, of course. The Neo Geo Mini over the last couple of years. The C64 Mini. All very popular systems. The people want to play the, the catalogue of games in yeah. 2018. What about a Philips CDI Mini? <laughs> I... CDI, I, sorry I laugh if you're a CDI fan out there. But, There's not many of them. But I've not really seen any decent titles on that machine. You know, I, I, I don't think there's a big enough audience for it. Well, the CDI, I mean, there may be people that are not all that familiar with what the CDI was. It was a project by Philips and a few other companies back in the early 90s. And it kind of came around because companies believed that there was going to be this market for home living room multimedia devices. Well, wasn't there like a million CD devices all out at the same time, all trying to fight for a tiny market? Well, I remember Commodore had the CD TV out around that time, didn't they? Yeah, you um, had the 3DO as well, didn't you? No, the 3DO was a real games console, but originally the CDI was envisioned as a machine that you would put next to your VCR and like, you know... Oh, like a multimedia yeah. home... Okay. You'd look okay. at atlases on it and that kind of thing. Yeah. It helped with your schoolwork and interactive encyclopedias, that kind of thing. And then when that market didn't really take off, they kind of repositioned it as, all right, let's make it a games console. But they did a deal with Nintendo, right, didn't they? Yeah. And they, I, I remember seeing Hotel Mario, yeah. which was a really weird game because you're just closing doors and kind of going in and out. But it looked all right. But then I've seen some uh, footage of these FMV uh, Zelda games and stuff. My God. Yeah, there's, I think there's three Zelda games on there. Um, and yeah, Nintendo... It kind of, I think it harks back to when Nintendo were looking at doing their own CD platform. You know, obviously they kind of did a deal with Sony to make the PlayStation 
there was going to be a CD drive for the uh, the Super Nintendo. Yeah, yeah. That deal fell through. Then they went with Philips and said they're going to make the CD drive. But in return, they gave them this license to make these awful games based on Nintendo trademarks on the uh, on the CDI. Now, the CDI was a monumental failure. Philips lost a billion dollars. Then why are we talking about it in a mini sense? Is there uh, uh, some news come out or something? Well... After the PlayStation Mini was announced a couple of weeks ago, uh, this guy on Twitter, his name is Chris Scullion, he tweeted Phillips and said, right, Phillips, it's time. And he mocked up this little artwork, little graphic, talking about the CDI Classic. It's really funny. It said, Phillips CDI Classic, including 20 classic games like Hotel Mario, Zelda, The Wand of Gamelon, Link, The Faces of Evil, all these games that came out on the CDI. Seventh Guest is on there, which actually wasn't a bad yeah. game. And... The thing about it is, a load of people have retweeted it and liked it, thinking, oh, that's hilarious. Phillips actually replied to him. <laughs> and it turns out, from their tweet back, they haven't completely ruled it out. So they said, Hi, Chris. Thank you very much for reminding us of the Philips CDI. We appreciate the thought of a smaller classic version of one of our legacy devices. Okay, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Then a few other people have been kind of tweeting them, going, oh, go and make it happen. Another reply from uh, a Twitter account called CDI3DO is obviously a fan of the, the, uh, the, the CDI anyway. They replied to him saying, thank you for your love, encouragement and interest. We'll try our best to fulfill your dreams and release something you suggest, but we cannot promise anything yet. Please be patient and stay tuned. Oh, that, that does sound like that they are actually looking into it. And, you know, with these consoles, I'd say all of the other ones, apart from the CDI, are a guaranteed moneymaker. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think the CDI would be worth the effort, but I could be wrong. There could be a, a pocket of CDI fans that are very rich somewhere. If you'd lost a billion dollars on a project, would you want to do it again? No. <laughs> I mean, I imagine it'd be cheaper for them to do it now, but there's never in a billion years. A lot of people have been going crazy about this. I've seen, like, you know, videos like an hour long talking about what should be in it and how it's going to be happening. But really, I mean, I look at this and I see, like, uh, it's a support team who reply to everybody probably. Yeah. I bet it's like some 19-year-old student who's never even heard of the CD either. And he's like, oh, probably yeah. sitting there going... Oh my God, guys, our yeah. Twitter's blowing up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so normally you get tweets about washing machines or whatever. Yeah. Um, but that, he's probably like emailed it to some manager somewhere, like, oh, we did this product years ago. Do you know anything about it? I can't see that as being a, you know, yeah, Philip's going to make a CDI. Nobody really needs a, an HD 2018 version of the Grolier Encyclopedia in their life, do they? Let's no, no, but. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting to see which little systems are going to come out and uh, maybe we'll get some crazy ones, the Casio Loopy Mini or something, yeah. who knows? <laughs> I'd like an Atari Jaguar CD Mini, yes. Oh, something yeah, like that, something that, like that happened. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk a bit about the Nintendo Switch as well because um, obviously Nintendo's online services are running now. Uh, a lot of the classic games are coming there as well. But there has been a lot of demand um, online by fans for the virtual console. Of course there has, because I am a big fan of the virtual console because you can inject everything into it. So basically, the support on the Wii virtual console yeah. um, supports like N64 emulators and direct GameCube emulators, which work fantastically. So then the Wii U had the virtual console in it, so they'd emulate a Wii, and then they'd have inside that Wii yep. C64, <laughs> uh, uh, N64 emulator. And C64. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. yeah. So... Basically, the virtual console is a kind of way of pirating stuff, a way of putting modified code on there that they don't want on there. So I guess they're maybe holding off with the Switch, even though the Switch has already been cracked. Yeah, well, actually, as a little aside to that, um, the day they launched the online, the NES emulator that they use for the games that you buy on there, um, yeah, that was hacked on the first day. Yeah. Yeah. Someone, there's a video on YouTube of a guy actually showing him putting his own ROMs on there. Because it turns out the, the NES emulation that they've got running on the Switch is the exact same code that's on the NES Mini. So Yeah, yeah, which is probably the same one that they've got on the Wii. And yeah. like the thing is, with the virtual machines as well, it's so crazy that they even put limitations in them. Mm-hmm. So people inject code into the virtual machines to optimize the virtual machine inside your Wii U. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing about it is, I mean, the reason that we're talking about the virtual console is, you know, up until now, Nintendo haven't talked about it being released on the, the Switch. Essentially, if you pay for their online service, you can access some of the classic stuff that's yeah. on there. But there is no real way at the moment, you know, not like it was on the Wii or the Wii U, where you could buy a load of old classic Yeah, games. and you can't do backwards compatible mm. stuff, so you can't play your old Wii titles. Or well, it turns like out, I mean, someone's been looking at 
uh, the eShop on the Nintendo Switch, the JavaScript code in there as well. And they found some interesting little bits in there that talk about different categories of games. And this is from the eShop, and they've got like uh, little titles out that say SNES, GB, GBC, N64, and Nintendo DS. Okay, so th- that does look like virtual console stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But it turns out that apparently the eShop on the, um, the 3DS and the 2DS has got the same code in there as well. And there's no way you're going to run N64 games on a DS. But there may, be, there may be a way around this, which is absolutely crazy. Uh, they have a thing called CMU, which is a Wii U emulator. So yeah. <laughs> it runs, that on, runs, all right, runs on the Switch as well. Okay. So you may be able to emulate the Wii U inside your Switch to then emulate the Wii, <laughs> to then emulate the N64. <laughs> yeah, if you've got a spare month. <laughs> yeah. The thing about it is, I think Nintendo, they've launched this paid-for online service, and they would probably rather you pay them annually for this service to access these old games than going on and paying like four quid for like a NES game. Well, they know this is a success, right? Yeah. And they know that the, the, the Switch has been hacked because of the Tegra chip, which is the... Uh, it's got a hardware problem with it. So this, my, my prediction is that they are going to release a new version of the Switch, oh, totally. a revision without that hardware hacking and lock off the whole virtual console store to stop this uh, modded, modding kind of community and backups that are being And they've, they've already started blacklisting consoles as well that have been modded. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah I mean, you know, do that at your own risk. But I, I can't see them bringing the virtual console to it because I think, you know, they would rather have your subscription fee. Yeah, and once they've closed that hole on the um, hardware uh, exploit, then, you know... They'll, they'll have full control again. <laughs> yeah, which is what Nintendo was like. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of people have said this code that's in there is probably just a placeholder. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no guarantee that it's going to come, and I honestly don't think it will. But, you know, we'll keep an eye on that. And if you want to read more about it, we'll put it in this week's show notes, along with every other story at theretrohour.com. It's like opening Pandora's box. They don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> if they listen to the fans, though, a bit more, I mean, that's yeah. a reason to get hacked, isn't it? Now, let's talk a bit about this um, 8-bit symphony concert that's coming up. We had Chris Abbott on the show. Talking about the legend that is Rob Hubbard. Oh, yes. Well, this 8-bit symphony is absolutely crazy. It's a 90 minutes, 80 different people involved, and it's 8-bit. And this is going to be classic Commodore 64 music done by the Hull Philharmonic Orchestra. Yes, uh, stuff like Martin Galway, Richard Joseph, Fred Gray. You know, classic, classic C64 stuff. Now, we did have Chris on the show a bit earlier on this year, and he was talking about the fact that he wanted to put this concert on in Hull um, because that's where Rob Hubbard's from, and it's really a celebration of Commodore 64 music. But at the time, he was kind of in the process of organising it, and he didn't have a date confirmed for it. It still hadn't been 100%ed yet. But now it turns out there is officially a date if you want to come along and watch 8-Bit Symphony. Now, it's going to be happening in Hull, at Hull City Hall, on the 15th of June 2019. So you've got plenty of notice if you want to come along to it, and I think we should go. Definitely, and you know the demand for this is going to be really high, because seeing Rob Hubbard and yeah. all of these guys, God, it's, it's mind-blowing. So if you guys uh, want to sign up, there's a sign-up option on there, and then you'll get like all the kind of latest updates. So you can follow at C64 Audio on Twitter as well for more info. Yeah, and they reckon the box office is going to be opening very soon, so I imagine tickets are going to be going on sale any day now, and uh, keep an eye on that in our show notes as well. Now, before we get into our interview with Mike Woodroth this week, talking about Simon the Sorcerer, another classic adventure, games let's talk about another mini console you know we talked about the sega mega drive mini that was announced a bit earlier on this year yeah um originally it was kind of rumored that it would be out before christmas turns out it's been delayed until 2019 okay is is why is this is a sega suddenly developed quality control because <laughs> i remember their last console was um it was with this company called At Games, yeah. and it was notoriously bad. Um, if you played with the sound off, it was all right. But, um, and if you didn't mind uh, frame glitching and jumping yeah. and bugs in your game and your characters disappearing halfway through levels. Yeah, and it, and it had a weird choice of games as well. Yeah. So uh, w- what's going on here, Dan? Well, originally, like, like we said, it was rumoured to be coming out in different markets at different times. So they were hoping some would be, you know, before Christmas this year. Sega have now said that the uh, response to the announcement in the West was actually a lot bigger than they expected it would be. So now what they're saying is they want to put it out, um, a simultaneous release worldwide in 2019. And again, they have said, like you said then, they're going to be focusing on quality control. So there have been lots of people speculating 
And it's on the rumour mill that maybe Sega have actually severed their relationship with that games. And they're going to be taking this in-house and developing yeah. it all themselves. Or, or they've kind of said, right, step up your game at games. If, if, if you don't deliver this to a high standard, you know, uh, we may do it. Or they may be just saying... At Games produced something, and then I go, this isn't good enough. <laughs> Get back to work. <laughs> well, looking at this, I mean, the fact that they, they've been looking at the reaction to it, I imagine the comment they were getting all the time is, oh, why have you got at Games involved? And that had to ring alarm bells with them. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people saying this as well, that when, I mean, when did the first At Games thing come out? It's a few years ago now, yeah. wasn't it? About five years ago, maybe. And then, I mean, it was really before this kind of mini console revolution took off. And five years ago, you could get away with churning out a crappy clone of the Mega Drive, selling it for 50 quid in Argos, and all right, it might not be perfect emulation, but people thought, oh, just a bit of a novelty. But now, because we've got these really high-quality little consoles coming out from Nintendo and Sony, Sega need to up the game. And Sega are doing stuff right. Like, you know, they've seen an increase of 32% profit this oh, year. Right, okay. And that's them bringing out less games yeah so stuff like sonic mania though like less but better quality and that's what i think this is hopefully gonna be everyone's been saying that haven't they sega kind of turned a corner a bit recently yeah and that is good and they're listening to the fans a lot more which is important and i imagine they've been listening to the feedback about this and i mean you know from from what i can see they probably are going to be taking it in-house and doing it themselves properly it's good to see because they've got so many ips that they could really make something good of you know like just fantastic IPs, and they've been lost in the wilderness for a while, haven't they? But they seem yeah. to be slowly finding their way back home. But there's no way Sega could get away with releasing something like that flashback, that crappy clone that came out by Atgame. Well, they couldn't release it now. No. They could release it two years ago when the mini consoles weren't that much of a big thing. Now it's like mini console wars again, so yeah. <laughs> they've got to step up. Well, the reason you buy one of the mini consoles is because it offers you a as good of an experience as the original, but it's got the way. upscaling, and yeah. you know, so it needs to be done right. Yeah. I think Sega are listening to that. That's got to be why it's been delayed. And again, we'll keep an eye on that and everything else we talked about this week on our website at theretrohour.com. Right, thank you for checking out the news this week. And right now, of course, it is the Retro Hour Adventure Month, and uh, we are celebrating this amazing book, The Art of Point and Click Adventure Games, the new book from Bitmap Books, which is available now. And you can buy your copy right now on our website at theretrohour.com. Get yourself in the draw to win a copy of the book as well and right now let's talk about a game that does feature in this book and one of our all-time favorites simon the sorcerer what a game that was we're joined by this week's special guest mike woodruff you're listening to the retro hour podcast and it is of course adventure month with our good friends from bitmap books and it is our pleasure to welcome to the show this week's very special guest Thank you for joining us, Mike Woodroth. Good evening. Now, before we get into some uh, stories of adventure games that you've been involved with, you know, some legendary titles over the years, um, it's always nice to just get a bit of background on our guests as well. So it would be quite nice to find out what first got you into computers and video games and where did the journey all start? Well, it's, it's quite strange, really. The family business was musical instruments. And we had a music shop in Birmingham and we got manual stock control systems. And I wanted to computerize the stock control. And I bought a a Tandy computer to do this. And just out of interest, I bought a copy of Pyramid Adventure from Tandy, from Radio Shack. And that was what got me into computer games. I played it and I thought, wow, this is great. We, you know, I really enjoyed it. Um, The stock control system was a total failure. Um, Just software was no, no good in those days. And uh, on the back of the retail musical instruments, we started a, a shop selling computers. Well, we started a sh- shop stocking computers, but not actually selling any. Um, and it was all Apple II. We had, we had a load of Apple II stuff. And in those days, an Apple IIe was about £600, which was a lot of money. Mm. And um, it went from there. We quickly realized that what people actually wanted was the games to go on the computers, not business products at all. There were no games available in the UK or very, very few at that time. So we started importing them from America, um, a lot of them from a company called Instant Software in New Hampshire, and it just grew from there. 
were you always into like adventure games and uh, Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that? Yeah, yes, because we the first software that we we started bringing in was 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 TRS eighty utility software for coders and stuff and very simple games. But we very quickly got in touch with Scott Adams and he was the first. We, we were importing games from Scott and uh, there was another adventure product which i can't remember the name of now um but yeah it was nearly all adventures because at that time most games were text-based graphics hadn't really come into it because you were you know there was not the memory in the computers so a lot of the initial games were adventures and to be honest uh, text adventures were fairly easy to produce you could knock one out in a few weeks i mean brian house knocked some of his early ones out in a weekend so they were very quick to create and um there was a big demand for them. It was only later when the computers got, got more capable, uh, basically with RAM, that the graphics were added. So we started by importing all the components for the Scott Adams Adventures and then realized that we were paying a lot of money to ship air freight, air. We were bringing air across the ocean in, bo- in big cardboard boxes. It was crazy. <laughs> so we said, can we, can we make the stuff here? So we started making the product here. And... They were selling faster than uh, that he was producing them, and he wasn't producing enough product. Um, then he got the um, the Marvel license, and that slowed production down massively. As you probably know, I think he only did three Marvel games, and I think if you, I remember from the podcast that you did with him, he had the rights to the entire Marvel universe to do with what he wanted, and only produced three games, which was very, very frustrating. When we had Scott on the show, I mean, he was telling us originally, you know, he used to use um, baby formula packaging to, <laughs> to send, the, send the games out. I mean, what kind of... Did that affect it when he was sending them transatlantic then or were they packed, packed a bit better by then? They were packed better by the time we got, got involved with it, where there were cardboard boxes. What systems were you converting to as well? Oh, now then I can tell you that because I've actually got a list. Right, Scott Evans Adventures, we did on the Spectrum... They were done the Commodore 64 cassette and disc, the Commodore 16 Atari cassette and disc, the Dragon, the BBC, and Electron. I think after that we did Oric versions of some of them as well, to be honest. That's quite a lot of systems, though, isn't it? Oh, it was. Mm. It was a lot. But the text systems were dead easy to do. Once you'd put the basic interpreter across the database, you just ran. So you only ever wrote one game and imported the databases. They were all the same. It was the basic interpreter and driver that did all the work. And once you'd done that, the whole series was created. What was the point when you started to change direction from kind of converting to creating games? Well, because we couldn't get enough product to convert. Uh, and it drove us, it was the market drove us to start looking to create our own product because we couldn't get enough. The market at that time, there were not many people creating product. The market wanted it but no one's going to buy two copies of the same game. You, you've got a limited market in the fact that there aren't the game players there, but those games players were very hungry for new products. Uh, we, we also um, got, we went out and went down the licensing route. We did Robin of Sherwood, um, and we did uh, Gremlins, uh, we did the Fighting Fantasy books, stuff like that. Well, those uh, fighting fantasy books that you mentioned, they were fantastically popular. How did that deal come about, and how did you guys uh, pick which books to kind of go ahead with? Well, we, the deal came about because I, I knew one of the managers at uh, one of the Games Workshop stores, and he was able to get me an introduction to the guys. And uh, we, at that time, they, they were happy with what we were doing, and we started doing them. We just chose them initially on the, on the plot that um, we liked the idea of. I mean, I trying to think which was, I can't remember the order we did them in. I know I did Caesar Blood myself because I've always been fascinated with pirates. Um, oh, here we go. We did um, Rebel Planet, Caesar of Blood, Temple of Terror, and Sword of the Samurai were the four that we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. We did those four. Initially, you guys were kind of mainly adventure-based, and then uh, Horrorsoft came around. What what was the connection with AdventureSoft and Horrorsoft? And uh, it, it was it was the same development team, purely a, a way of marketing the product because we wanted to say this is what it is. These are horror games, so it made perfect sense to us to brand the whole thing as Horrorsoft. It was the same. It was a, 
we registered a separate company to preserve the IP, but it was basically the same development team. Were you a fan of the Elvira movies then? Because I know she's actually still going today, Elvira. I noticed the other day. That's right, she is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wonderful use of makeup. Um, uh, well, that was an accident, that was, because we were, we were approached by uh, guys at Pinesoft to help them with the development of the game. And halfway through it, they hit the buffers. So we had done a load of work on this game for them, and there wasn't going to be a game because they'd gone out of business. So their agent put us in touch with um, Cassandra Peterson's husband, who was her agent. I went over to the States and sort of said, well, can we do a deal here? And Because uh, we've got a game half-developed and stuff, and we did a deal with him direct. Um, and then uh, Accolade uh, picked it up from there. So that was an accident, in actual fact, the reason we got into those. Because she had a couple of movies, didn't she, in the late 80s as well that were quite big? Yes, have you watched either of them? Yeah, I think I did the first one, yeah. <laughs> OK, you probably scarred them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... Yeah, they were, they were very camp, yeah. um, sexy horror movies, basically. I only saw the first one, I never saw the second one. <laughs> it put you off. Wait. <laughs> they weren't great, they were very much B-movies. But as you say, she's still going today. She's very big in the States on Halloween, I think, still. Mm. You know, she's still about... But she, she hosted a, a horror night a movie show for many years, one of the cable channels, I think, and I think that's where she got her popularity from. I seem to remember mm. her doing, like, a, an Adventure Tips helpline in one of the computer magazines for a bit as well, like, randomly. Maybe, was that around the time of your game, maybe? I'm not sure. I don't remember that, to no. be honest. Um, we used to do... Uh, a hit, hit, we used to have a hit line running in the office at nights for people who were stuck on the game. Mm. Um, but I don't remember that. Well, would but, you get kids ringing up then and stuff and you'd all have to answer her? Um, it was mostly grown-ups, actually. I don't think many kids were playing computer games in those days. Well, uh, a lot of games that are kind of licensed don't often re- reflect the title, you know. A lot of the time they actually have um, underneath the uh, banner of the game so that you can know what you're playing because uh, they would have platformers that would uh, never look like uh, the actual movie title. Uh, you guys stayed true to the IP and kind of had Elvira on the screen and uh, you had a, a full kind of RPG dungeon crawler. Um, mm. uh, did you kind of reference it really... Uh, accurately? Oh, yes, very accurately and, uh, and intentionally because what is the point in paying for an IP if you don't use it? It doesn't make sense. So the, the IP is there to give you uh, the visual references, to give you what that character brings to the game, to not use the, 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 um, the uniqueness of the IP in the game, to my mind, would be stupid. So we always made sure that we, we use the visuals and the, um, the essence of the, of the character, what they brought to it, or, or the actual game. So Robin of Sherwood, you know, you've got Robin in it, you've got Sheriff of Nottingham, it's based in, in a forest, you've got Hearn the Hunter. And we used a lot of the stories, bits from the various stories that they, that they were in the TV series which is what it was based on. And then Gremlins, we took the movie and we, we, we analysed the movie. We looked at it very carefully. We said, OK, which areas of the story would make good adventure gaming puzzles? And then created it that way. And that is what players want as well. Cause, you know, if you, if you buy a game based on a movie, you want to be like kind of playing that movie. You don't want something totally different. Well, that's right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's where you've got to be very careful. So it's, it's no good, for example... Been an adventure writing company and say, yeah, let's go and get the license to Top Gun, and then write a load of puzzles around. It wouldn't work. It's not the right, not the right storyline, and not 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 the right thing. So you've got to get it right as to what you should be, the 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 actual licenses you want, and also the ones that you can get. I mean, we we tried very hard to get the Discworld license, which had been perfect for what we were doing. But could we persuade Terry Pratchett? No, we could not. Did you, uh, just, did you not see the value in games then, did he? Or? Well, it, no, he wasn't interested in computer games at the time. I think he did I think he did license them to somebody else eventually or something, but no, he wouldn't have it. He just didn't he just would not see it. We could not talk him into it. Yeah, there was a lot of Discworld titles later on, but they were all by different developers and uh yeah, yeah some not so successful. <laughs> No, I mean, I read The Colour of Magic. Uh, I thought, wow, this is perfect for computer adventures. This is great. 
But no, we tried really, really hard to talk him into it, and he just wouldn't have it. And that book was huge, wasn't it? The Colour of oh, Magic. Yeah, absolutely massive. It would have been a really good tie-up at the time, but no, he wouldn't have it. Well, one of your most epic titles was uh, Waxworks. That was an amazing game, you know, music, the colouring. And I remember, wasn't it on, like, ten discs? It was massive, wasn't it? And, yeah. yeah it was a big product, that was. You're lucky it was only ten. Um, <laughs> it was, that, was, that was inspired by the Waxworks film. Did you ever see the film? I, I remember film? hearing about it when I was a little kid, but I think I was too young to... <laughs> yeah, it, it was in, but there, was, there was no IP there as such, um, because... Um, but the idea, we thought, well, that would make a perfect computer adventure game because you can take the various scenarios from the Waxworks, which we did, and then we looked at, okay, what can we take? And we we decided to take stuff that people would know, like we did Jack the Ripper. Um, I know we had lots of blood and guts, which some people absolutely loved. The Germans loved it. We got 82% in one of their magazines. Well, with the kind of changing of uh, and complexity of technology... What was the progression like coming from these uh, first-person dungeon crawlers to very painful point and click? It was very expensive to create the graphics. The problem was you need, as machines became more and more capable, you got more and more graphics, and creating graphics at that time was very difficult. So you know, we invested a fortune in silicon graphics, and uh, uh, and then the, the um, it was Maya, I think, was the software. It was expensive for the seats and the training was expensive. And it was a very expensive process to get 3D graphics that you could use in the game. It cost a lot of money. I think we spent a couple hundred thousand quid in those days just getting the hardware and software together to, to create, the, create the product. It was brutal. Yeah, I was playing with one of the... Um... Silicon Graphics Machines at the Centre for Computing History in Cambridge the other week, and you think how much they used to cost, like the price of a house back then, weren't they? Some of them, they were, crazy. They were yeah, and we'd got about half a dozen of them, you know. It was, it was ridiculous. They were a fortune. Nobody knew how to use them. They couldn't use the software, and we had to, we had to employ an ex-Maya um, um, demonstrator to train all our artists on how to use it, and it took months and months and months. Uh, very expensive, and... Uh, it was very, very, very difficult. Very difficult because it's not like today where you can, you know, you can go and get a Unity system and license it for what? If you're under a hundred thousand dollars for nothing, but it's only like a fifteen hundred dollars a year per seat, and and it does the whole job. It gives you a three D engine, all your graphics, everything. Um, it was very expensive. One of our favourite games was Simon the Sorcerer. Where, where did the idea for Simon come from then? Well. It was it was Simon, my son, who who came up with the idea, and it was it was based around him and his friends, and, and inspired by Discworld, Monty Python, Blackadder, Red Dwarf. It was a, a conglomeration of all that sort of adolescent schoolboy humour, because you know, the jokes are very schoolboyish in uh, Simon the Sorcerer, and uh, yeah, it all came from that world really, and the fact that he was just an overgrown school kid. Oh, yeah. much, a lot of him in it. I was going to say the greatest part of Simon for me is uh, the humour. When I, when I was a school kid playing it, I'd be uh, laughing on the floor. Was he also a fan of uh, Lucas Arts games and took a bit of influence from them? Yes, yes, he did. Yes, he was, you know, Guybrush, Monkey Island, all that stuff. Yeah, loved it, loved it. He was a big Discworld fan as well. He read all that. He, he read all that stuff as soon as it came out. Yeah, massive. And as a result of our success, we did try to get the Harry Potter license, but that was a bit of a joke. We didn't stand any chance whatsoever. Yeah, what what is the Harry Potter connection? Because I I kind of read, uh, I, I kind of think J.K. Rowling must have played Simon the Sorcerer at one point. It, it, it uh, would be nice to think that she did, but I have no idea whether she did or she didn't. We've certainly never spoken to her. Um, she, she, I don't even know if she knows we exist. It it kind of reminds me of also uh, Neil Gaiman's uh, books of magic, which were quite big at the time as well about a young. A young sorcerer, maybe uh, Simon was reading those. Oh, yes, he was. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, definitely. But, but I mean, basically, I mean, the, the, you know, a lot of it is based on classic fairy stories as well, and taking the the fairy the characters out of concept to, to create humour. I mean, if we, you know, if we were going to do a, a another one, maybe we do Red Riding Hood with the with the, the big bad wolf as a vegetarian, um, <laughs> which would. Uh, 
make life a bit difficult for him. Well, how important yeah. was your uh, game creation system, um, Adventure Graphic Operating System, or Argos? Um, uh, it was very important, because that, that, that basically allowed, allowed non-coders to create part of the game, because there was a scripting language in there that ran the whole thing. And, and I wrote, I did a lot of the scripting for it. Um, so you could, the, the artist could give you the frames, the backdrops, and you, just using the scripting language, you could create the game and put the text in, uh, put the uh, the animations together, uh, uh, the scrolling, but the whole thing could all be done relatively simply. And we, you know, if we wanted to do something that we couldn't um, do within the scripting line, we just ring up Alan and say, "Look, you know, we'd like to be able to do this." And then a couple of days later, you know, he'd come back with a couple of extra commands for the language. It was a bit like a basic plus plus language, you know. It was based on that, but it was our own our own system, and it worked really, really well. But the big plus was that non-coders could create game game content. And I guess it meant you could spend more time on the graphics and the actual story rather than having to do all the, the technical stuff as well. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, I think Simon, I think Alan and myself wrote most of the, the scripting for the whole thing. We all took Simon's story and everything. The artist, I mean, really, when you look at Simon the Sorcerer, it wasn't a big team. It was not like, not like today's team, but it was a very small team. And the creative, as you say, an absolute classic. And it did take us by surprise. I mean, you know, we used to we used to sit there and we used to get orders coming in from Germany. And they used to think, wow, that's a great order. And then an hour later, you'd get another one just as big. And you'd be thinking, what are they doing with them? Uh, Germany was so big for Simon the Sorcerer, it was ridiculous. I was going to say that the art and the uh, style of presentation was absolutely stunning. It was probably one of the best-looking Amiga um, games. Could you tell us about your art department? Well, well you know, the, the, the big thing about our art department was they were all recruited on the basis of their fine art portfolios. None of them had done computer graphics before. So we didn't take computer artists. We took artists and taught them how to use a computer. And that's why it's the quality it is. They're not computer artists. They are proper illustrators. You can... If you saw the, the covers for the original artwork for the covers for Simon 1 and Simon 2, which I've still got, which um, Paul Drummond and Jeff Wall created, they are absolutely amazing. The detail is stunning. At one time, Paul was painting with a brush with one hair to get you know, that precise. They are beautiful pieces of art. Beautiful. And, yeah, they're very, very talented, all of them. Well, even the background screens had so much detail in them. It was amazing. Um, mm-hmm. To the point yeah. that the loading screens uh, even had fantastic little animations with the tiny dog and him pulling the rabbit out of the hat and stuff. Who thought of that? Simon and, and Al, uh, Alan... No, not Alan Brazier. Yeah, um, Andrew. Andrew Brazier. They, they came up with the, the sort of overview of what they wanted the... Um, opening sequences to do and then the artist just drew all the frames and then we bunged it together using using Agos. When the game came out, I mean, I remember reading reviews of it in magazines and, you know, everyone praised how amazing Simon the Sorcerer was and the fact that everyone said it was like, you know, up to the standard of these really high expense, you know, Lucasfilm games that they were making at the time as well. Were you kind of impressed or surprised by the amazing reaction it got? We were very surprised, mm. yeah, and, you know, it was great. Uh, it, it was um, it was also at the time when we were self we were we were basically self publishing by then as well using the guys at um, Centersoft had got the, a, a division which had been set up to, to self publish for you so they they basically uh, sourced the boxes through their they the guys there owned a, a, a design house mm-hmm. so they did all the design they they helped they put a special person on marketing they did all the marketing for us and everything it became a one-stop um shop to put everything together for you and they they, they got the printing done got the boxes made up uh, they warehoused the product they got the orders in did all the shipping they were they were great so we were in effect self-publishing well one thing that was fantastic as well uh, was the music and the kind of atmosphere that it created uh at- could you tell us about that, please? You may not know this, but my brother Jez was responsible for some of the music on on those games, and he, he's a, a rock rock musician. He used to play with Black Sabbath. Oh wow! Oh cool! <laughs> <laughs> he was the keyboard player on the Technical Ecstasy tour, and he played with Robert Plant um, as well on Principle of Moments. And 
So, yeah, we used professional musicians. And uh, Dave Punchin was another one. I think he's still working today in the music industry doing computer games. He, he did uh, some of the other stuff as well. So, yeah, again, using professional musicians, not necessarily people who specialised in computer music. And when Jez did his stuff, he'd never, ever written anything for a computer before. He'd just given the brief, get on with it. You're my brother, do it. He changes style a bit for uh, Simon the Sorcerer, though, from Black Sabbath. Just a little, yeah. <laughs> well, one version of Simon the Sorcerer I remember being, you know, blown away by was on the um, the CD32 games console because you got um, Chris Barry, uh, Rimmer from Red Dwarf, doing the, the talkie version of it. So h- how did that come about then, and did you like well, the he, game? He, 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 uh, Chris did all of the um, uh, Simon the Sorcerer one voiceovers for all the versions. What happened was... I think we, we sat down and said, well, who would we like? And the guy said, well, Chris Barry. And I said, come on. So I I said, well, we'll have a go. So I got I've the source that is agent, and we did a deal. And uh, we went into a studio in London uh, with a production team, and they produced the whole thing. I think we did it in three days. Um, the hardest studio, Chris came along, and he was great to work with. We also used a chap. It was really another professional chap called Roger something or other, his name I can't forget, who did Sordid and all those characters. Hmm. He was really good to work with. But yeah, it was great fun. Uh, it was great to work with, Mr Barry. Well, he was excellent. Did, did he play the game afterwards or was, was, he, was he a gamer at all? I have no idea, to be honest. Okay. I haven't got a clue. He might have done. I'd like to think he did, but I don't know whether he did or not. Oh, I, I love some of the voices. Uh, the, the snot guy, I remember him. <laughs> and, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um with Simon too, as well, uh, what, what did you change then? Because the storyline changed. Well, Chris wasn't available to do the graphic, wasn't available to do the voiceovers. Well, actually, I think, I think that he's, um, he's feared that by then he was commanding, sort of made it impossible to use him. But his agent had another chap, uh, whose name I can't remember now, who, he, who used to put in for all the, the gigs that Chris couldn't then do. And he was excellent. Um, and he did Simon 3 as well. He came up, we built our own studio by the time we did Simon 3, and he came up to Birmingham, and we did that there. We did um, the Fable Files and uh, Simon 3. We did all the voices in our own studio, which was great fun. Um, but, yeah, so it was a different actor, which is why the voice is slightly different. And there was uh, a bit of an interface change as well, wasn't there? Yeah, we put a scrolling interface in as well. So you, the, 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 if you if you look at it, there are there are two scroll points on the sides of the screen, and when the character hits that point, the, the background scrolls. That was the main upgrade was the scrolling backdrops. But that was driven by you know what everybody else was doing. As with um, Harry Potter and stuff, he actually grew up, not like Bart Simpson remaining <laughs> constantly young. Um, how did you reflect this in the game? It was slightly more adult humour, slightly more risque, and and and. and not quite so fairy tale so the, the, the content moved on a bit because they've, they've got the pirate ship and stuff like that, and uh, it, it just it just naturally moved on. Well, did you feel by this time, I mean, when we got into like the late 90s, that adventure games were kind of losing the limelight in favour of, like, you know, first-person shooters and games like, you know, Quake yes. and Doom and that kind yes. of thing? Yes, yes, they were. The, the market was moving on. And, and things got, you know, this is where we moved into uh, uh, Call of Cthulhu. To, and um, we got the Call of Cthulhu license and moved everything forward into big RPGs. The problem by then was that games were becoming very expensive to fund. Uh, Cthulhu cost over a million pounds to produce. And small companies, you just couldn't do it. You just couldn't do it. And, the sales weren't there, and there was a lot of bankruptcies in the developers. There were companies coming up and disappearing all over the place, and it got very, very, very hard. There were a lot of casualties. Well, there's still casualties today. I, I, I heard that um, Telltale closed last week or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, very sad. Yeah, and they couldn't pay all their stuff, so, yeah, yeah. it was pretty shocking. What happens. You, 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 you know, see what happens. We had some major bankruptcies on us. Uh, our Canadian... We had a we had a, a backer from Canada. They hit the deck. A, a French company. Um, we were with Ravensburger for a time, and then they pulled out the industry. And very very difficult. Very very difficult. Games were getting expensive. Big teams. I mean, not like teams of today, but we'd got 50 employees at one time, and uh, it was no fun doing the. As you say, you, at the end of the month, you've got to find the money to pay everybody. Not easy. Well, continuing with adventure games. Um... 
the Feeble Files came out, which kind of took influence from 1984. And I, I was like, wow, one of these old school adventure games is coming out now. But it had a bit of a difference. It had that kind of uh, pre-rendered uh, capture. Could you talk about this? Well, it, was, it, was, it was actually rendered. It was rendered. It was, yeah. it was all pre-rendered, yeah. All, everything was rendered uh, on Silicon Graphics workstations. It was one, uh, so it was actually all rendered. It looked, it wasn't live rendered, it was pre-rendered instead of being actual live action 3D rendering. It wasn't rendered as, as the game was played. It was all pre-rendered in advance. I mean, we had some right games with that because with, with um, I'll tell you a funny story, with the, we discovered that one of our artists who was doing the characters, he was, we, he was painting the veins on the back of the eyeballs to get realism. We said, what are you doing this for? Oh, he looks much, much better at the, 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 the eyes and blood chop and stuff. We then discovered he'd got 500 eyes all nested inside each other and didn't know. And he was wondering why everything was running so slow. So we immediately removed 499 copies of one eye. <laughs> but it was very hard because no one else was doing it. Um, and it was done to try and create large amounts of quality graphics reasonably quickly because what you know once you've got stuff set up you just set things off to render you could create things quite nicely but it just oh feeble files was great fun the problem was it should have been simon the sorcerer 3 2d we made a marketing error moving away from 2d adventures we should have stayed with what we were good at but the team wanted a change and it was a mistake we should have, should have stayed with the IP and we should have done another 2D adventure. But the demand would have been good enough uh, to make it pay, pay, but we didn't do that and it was a mistake. Did you feel under pressure to do 3D because the whole industry was at that stage, wasn't it? It was, yeah, and we shouldn't have listened. Hmm. We shouldn't have listened. We should have said, no, no, listen to what the public want, not to what the publishers want. The publishers were the problem. Um, they, they wouldn't look at 2D stuff. Uh, it was very difficult because, the, you know... It, you haven't got the self-publishing platforms that you've got today. You haven't got Steam. You haven't got good old games. You you couldn't do the marketing. You couldn't. The Kickstarter didn't exist to get the funding. It's so much better and more fun today, I would imagine, to to, to develop games than it was then, because it was a hard slog. Because you know you you've got to fly around the world. You've got to try and impress um, publishers. I mean, I remember doing a we did a, a PS2 um, PlayStation PlayStation Two version of one of our Call of Cthulhu titles uh, and we took it to a big publisher and we, we heard from their, their head of uh, R&D, this is the best PlayStation 2 demo I've seen this year the best one and they still didn't pick it up. Well you worked with uh, obviously another Red Dwarfer, uh, this time Robert Llewellyn who played Crichton in Red Dwarf Yes. what was he like to work with? Oh he was great, he played the game and he got involved, he even came to a trade show to help us uh, promote the product lovely man, absolutely great well, as you mentioned, uh, it kind of Simon 3D struggled with a lot of long development times and a lot of other titles did at the time, like uh, you know, Worms 3D, I remember, and Lemmings 3D, all of those things. But uh, what you managed to do was still re- retain the franchise and the kind of humour in the game. Well, Simon 3D was a struggle. I mean, it was a lot, lot bigger at one time. We were We had to cut it down to get it out because the problem is you're under financial pressures as well. Uh, and that's that's always the problem um, is balancing the financial pressures of developing the product against the cost and against the team size, and it, it's a very hard balancing act. It was a miracle Simon 3D ever came out at all. There was a time when we thought this ain't going to happen, but we we did manage to find a publisher in the end who put some money into it, uh, and we were able to finish it. But at one time it was touch and go. I can tell you, very very hard. The industry over the years has had a lot of teething problems and it's taken a long time to settle down Uh, and there are still casualties today which is a great shame. Well Simon didn't go away forever I mean this year we saw the release of Simon the Sorcerer 25th anniversary on Steam so how did that come about then? Well we've been um, there was a company in in Israel um, um, who won who did the Apple versions of it. They wanted to do the phone versions because we, we were out of computer games that had been for a number of years. And they came to me and said, you know, we'd like to license uh, the games and put them out on iPhone. And I said, yeah, if you've got the technology to do it, that, that'd be great. That's fine. 
So um, we did that, and um, they then produced Android versions, and they said, look, we'd like to do a 25th anniversary edition. So they took their original products and then souped them up. They improved the interface. They uh, pushed all the graphics through an algorithm to crease the pixels and make them look a little bit tidier, and they got rid of one or two gameplay problems and tidied it up, and they produced the whole thing. I didn't do anything apart from help with a bit of playtesting. You know, they just did the whole thing for us, which was great, and then they do the publishing now. And it's great that a new generation get to play it as well, though, isn't it? Yes, it's lovely. And it's, you know, I mean, when, when we were in the industry, nobody was playing the phones at all. And I remember one of the German publishers we worked with, they, they said, oh, the future is phones. And we went, what? You're insane. You must be mad. You know, because nobody was playing games on phones, but they were right. My God, they were right. And this new version's kind of optimised for that, so it has stuff like yes. if you were playing on a tablet, it would have hotspots instead of having to search around and find the um, pixels. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's right, exactly right. Yeah, it, you know, it's, it, it's designed to be more phone and tablet friendly because that's where people play these sorts of games. You know, it isn't like a uh, they're, not, they're not multiplayer online games that uh, you know all, all the mates get together and play and blast all bells of hell out of each other. What are you doing these days then, Mike? I'm a surveyor. All right. Um, when I first left school, I trained as a surveyor. Uh, when we came out of the computer games industry, I went back to surveying. So I value houses for a living. But we still run AdventureSoft, the mail order side. We still license the Simon the Sorcerer games, as you know. Um, uh, they're on a, there's a company in America who put them into aeroplanes. They're on the phones and stuff, and they're, they're on Steam and good old games. So we still do that a bit. And I keep an eye on the games market. You know, we've got one or two ideas, and now that the market is coming back towards the self-publishing model, you never know. We might just dip our toes again. And I think there has been a renewed interest in adventure as well over the last couple of years, hasn't there? Oh, there has, yeah. yeah. We sell a lot of... The original Simon the Sorcerer games on mail order to collectors, the big box, big box collectors. It's quite surprising. Every time one of the, the retro um, sites has an article and says, "Oh, have you seen that? You know, you can buy these games from Adventure Soft." The, the mail order goes bonkers for a couple of days, and then nothing for two months. <laughs> and go, uh, yeah, but yeah, there is an in, there is an interest in, in the original games, and that the, the book, which you know, we just come out. It's going to help to create more into That's a lovely book. And it's surprising when you start reading, oh, I remember that, I remember that, I remember that. And you, you forget how many really good quality adventures they were. I mean, you know, some of the, um, the graphics are just gorgeous. I mean, Charles Cecil's uh, latest game is it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the Art of Point-and-Click Adventure Games book here, um, and you are one of the contributors to that book as well, aren't you? Yeah, well, it was my son Simon who actually was the contributor, yes. He, mm-hmm. he did it. Uh, he did the interview for that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great book. I've had a good read through it, and it's lovely, lovely. Well, people do want to read more about Simon the Sorcerer. I advise them to uh, get a copy of the book. There's lots more in there as well. Um, just to kind of round off the interview, Mike, I mean, it's a question we've been asking um, all our adventure game guests over the last couple of weeks. What is it about the adventure genre that you think makes it so special? That's a good question. I think it's the fact that it's, it, it's non-violent in the main, it's puzzle solving and it's exploration and it's what's around this corner uh, or, what, you know, what happens if I take the screwdriver and put it in the... The dwarfs here, and I don't know. It's the, I, I, it, it's a little bit about. It's a little bit like why is Poirot and Sherlock Holmes so popular even today? They're not sort of big shoot 'em up type get, uh, products. They're all it's puzzle solving and detection. And I, I think there's a bit of detective in a lot of us. Cop shows are very popular. I, I think it could be that. I, I'm not really sure, but yeah. I would, if I had to put something on it, I would say it's because it's. It's more, you use your brain, not your brawn, and it's more puzzle-solving than, than other products. Well, I'd just like to say to all you listeners, uh, let's try and get this mail-order system going mad again. So <laughs> I'm just looking on the site of AdventureSoft, and it's amazing. You can get Simon 2 boxed and Simon 1 for, like, £10 each. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Well, well, we'll put a link in our show notes at theretroaddle.com if people want to uh, check that out. We'd, we'd advise them to have a look. Mike, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. 
That's all right. It's been a pleasure. I enjoyed it. This is my first podcast. Well, I'm, I'm glad you picked us for your first one. It's been good. And that is the end of this episode's Retro Hour Adventure Month special with this incredible book, The Art of Point-and-Click Adventure Games, the new wonderful book from our good friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you head to our website at some point over the weekend, have a look at theretrohour.com, get a look at this amazing book. You'll either have the chance to buy it now, use our link on there, you'll be really helping out the podcast, or enter our competition to win a copy of the book signed by the founder and creative director and publisher of Bitmap Books, Sam Dyer. So you'll find that right now at theretrohour.com, and we will see you next week. Everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.